Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hidden, a true crime podcast. A forensic psychologist and a journalist explore the hidden motives behind unthinkable crimes while examining our deepest fears along the way. Hello, Hidden Gems. It's time for another live hidden hour with psychologist Dr. John Mathias, who also happens to be my amazing husband. And we have missed all of you. As many of you know, we did not go live last week and we have been dealing with a lot in our house. And so thank you for our patience, but we just really wanted to see all of you tonight. Let us know if there's anything wrong with our sound throughout the night or any technical difficulties. I, I think that today we've got it. And I also think that tonight might be a smaller group and we welcome that. I've even slowed down the chat a little bit, but I can even speed it up. So we're so excited to hear from all of you tonight and are looking forward to this discussion despite the difficult topic. And then I'm going to say this from my husband. He has not been feeling well. Uh, <laughs> we have had COVID in our house. And uh, while he can show up, that doesn't mean he necessarily can't avoid coughing. So we're going to try to mute when we can, but please understand we're doing our best or he's doing his best. Go ahead, babe. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no guarantees against a coughing spell, but I, I, I've been okay the last few hours. So I'm optimistic. I'll try to try to hold it together here for an hour, hour and a half. So thank you for coming tonight. I think, let me just start by mentioning that I lost my mother on November 27th and we've been grieving that. And then on December 6th, there was a mass shooting at UNLV and I am, um, I'm an adjunct faculty member at UNLV. So I, I kind of felt like that was another reason to grieve that I, I didn't know the victims, but I've been an adjunct professor for 17 years and I certainly feel a lot of kinship with UNLV professors and in the college. And so that was another bit of a shock. It's It's been a bit of a, a difficult time, but I, I think it'll help to to deal with this process by talking about some of it and, and specifically talking about the perpetrator or I guess the alleged perpetrator. I, I think there's no question we know who did it, but tonight we'll talk about mass shootings and mass murderers a little bit and specifically about Anthony Polito, who was the UNLV shooter. I know it's it's somewhat controversial to talk about the names of shooters these days, that there's some belief that by talking about them that it creates attention for the shooters and 
it potentially contributes to their fame. But the other side of that, and that's the side I generally take, is that I think it's it's useful to kind of do a postmortem analysis of these shootings and to really examine how and why we got there so that we can engage in some prevention to avoid future shootings. I'm not sure if that could have been prevented here, but I think it's always worth having a discussion, thinking about why these events occur and what can be done to prevent them in the future. I agree. I think a discussion does need to be done in order or, or many discussions, which we always have here at Hidden True Crime. If, if we are going to prevent tragedies like this from ever happening again, or be able to see something. So I agree. And despite talking about Anthony Polito, we certainly want to start with the victims and honoring them and acknowledging them. All of them were faculty members. So as I mentioned, I, I feel a lot of kinship, even though I'm an, only an adjunct professor, I, I certainly have a great deal of sympathy towards all professors at UNLV. So I'm, I'm quite filled with sorrow over, over the events that transpired on the 6th. Yes, right. It was very heavy. And I want to say this too, this is not the first time a Las Vegas shooting has affected our family. And this is the second major mass shooting that Las Vegas has seen in six years. The Mandalay Bay shooting that occurred in 2017. There's a story there as well. We were living in Utah and I was a TV reporter in Utah and we had a three-month-old baby boy. And John was actually working in Las Vegas. Our little baby who we love so very much was a very colic baby and our first. And I was not sleeping at all. Nobody was sleeping. I think John was finally sleeping in Las Vegas because you were working in Las Vegas, but I was not. And I had just gone back to work weeks before, after maternity leave. And I was really nervous. This is my first time doing this. And I was on really autopilot as a, as a TV reporter. And I had just laid down. I think I had a couple hours of sleep and I got a call at 4 a.m. In the, in the morning. And I was in Utah. It was my Utah station calling me and they said, get up. You're working for Las Vegas today. It was when you know, it was the biggest mass shooting in this modern history in our country. And I got up and I had been at this concert, the, the concert uh, the year before myself. So I got up and I was frantic. Again, I was on autopilot. I wasn't thinking about anything about the fact that I was going to be leaving my baby behind. It was just so strange. So I called his nanny and I said, you've got to come over early. I've got to go. And I was driving, you know, on the, on the freeway delirious. They said, you're working for Las Vegas today. And Utah, Las Vegas and Utah. And all of a sudden I'm in Las Vegas and I'm, you know, pumping in the back of a, a news car and John is in Las Vegas and our, our newborn that we waited so long was alone in Utah. And it was the most, it was so traumatic uh, what we were experiencing. And it was actually that day that I decided I probably wasn't going to be the reporting working mother that I ever, that I thought I was going to be. And I decided that day that it was probably that I wanted to to be done reporting full time. But I did it for another nine months until we found a good time to quit. But that was really, that affected us too a lot. And so it did feel a little bit like, oh, here we go again when December 6th happened. And luckily there were fewer fatalities, but it was so reminiscent for our family. So it struck very close to home. With that in mind, understanding why we are covering this particular crime and why it's so important. John, why, yeah, why don't you share your initial thoughts and, and what happened too? You're, you're in charge of, John's the journalist on this case as well tonight, not me. So you've been on lo some local Las Vegas news. And so you've 
you've done the journalist aspect as well. I mean, the main insights are that he, Anthony Polito, who's 67 years old, he appears to have entered campus with a specific, he, he actually had a target list of a number of victims that were at UNLV that he was probably trying to, to find. But for whatever reasons, he entered Beam Hall and that's where his victims were located. Beam Hall is sort of in the middle of campus and it's actually not far from the clinical psychology program, by the way, as an aside that you can see it from the clinical psychology program. But he, I don't know the specific details of how he located the victims. What I do know is that the victims that he found and killed were not on his list. I also know that fortunately the police were able to locate him and subdue him before he, he killed other people because he had 150 rounds of ammunition, that he had way more ammunition that could have killed a lot more people. I do know also that when the police located him, he opened fire on the police and they returned fire and they killed him. So we were fortunate in the sense that there were many fewer fatalities than may have been anticipated given the fact that he entered in an unassuming fashion and nobody knew what he was up to. And he had a list that included many people. His, his target list also included members of the East Carolina University faculty in North Carolina as well, which obviously he wasn't in a position to, to find, locate, and, and many of those people, thankfully. People are already commenting on his age. Yes, this was a 67-year-old yeah. professor who targeted fellow professors. So this is unusual. It's it's not what we think, right? That That is surprising. In, yeah. In that, or do you want to get to that? <laughs> yeah, well, I think we'll talk about that a lot, actually. You know, it's interesting that the shooting you mentioned that occurred at the Mandalay Bay at the Harvest Festival was Stephen Paddock, and he was age 64. So both of the mass shootings that have occurred in Las Vegas have involved older adults, which is somewhat unusual. Although, as we'll talk about in a little bit, the pathology is, I think there's a lot of overlap in the pathology, at least from a psychological standpoint. And the person who I really like, the, the, whose research I really like and follow, who's talked a lot about mass shootings and school shootings is Peter Langman. Peter Langman is a psychologist in Pennsylvania. I actually attended a half-day webinar he gave about six months ago, and it was excellent. So Langman has, has done a really careful analysis of nearly every mass shooter that, that has some details from the case or are available. And he's, I think he's, he's probably identified the, the most um, clear-cut patterns of mass shooters. And so we'll, we'll be talking about his research a little bit. And also what distinguishes, you know, Langman has talked about similarities and differences between, say, adolescent shooters and older adult shooters. And I have some thoughts on that too that Langman has not talked about. So it is unusual. So maybe we should start, should, should we start talking about it? Well, do you want me to read a really great comment we got on our Facebook page really quickly or... Sure. <laughs> All right. I, I shared that we were going to be doing this this story, and I, I shared a local story that you participated in and shared that we'd be sharing more soon. And I want to say that Karen Rose, uh, our listener, wrote this. I live with someone who is an older teacher, 63. 
at a community college. It's such a youth oriented culture. And he worries a lot about what would happen if he ever lost his job. Could he get hired anywhere else? I get it. After always getting interviews and almost always getting the job I tried for, I stopped getting contacted for interviews at the age of 54. This is when I tried to get a new job after being in the same one for years. It was a terrible feeling to realize your chances to become reemployed might lessen. No murderous impulses, though. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that comes um, up right away, but I did want to bring that out. Just some thoughts that were the people have been having. I think the, uh, you know, I think he has a point here, or she, Karen, has a point here that that in terms of looking at Anthony Polito, that academic institutions certainly, with the exception of tenured professors that are kind of brand names, academic institutions definitely look to hire younger professors and professors that have a research agenda that they can develop, develop over a period of years and get grants and that sort of stuff. And so that makes perfect sense to me that that most universities want to focus on hiring and developing and nurturing younger talent. I mean, that's that would be the future of their departments. And And so one of Polito's frustrations, maybe his biggest frustration, was that he wasn't able to find employment at Nevada colleges or universities, including UNLV, and then he was repeatedly rejected. And, you know, if, if he does have a point, it, I think it's probably true that universities are, are less likely to hire a 67-year-old who is essentially more or less semi-retired, and he, he was a tenured professor at East Carolina University from 2001 to 2017. So I think it appears to me, I don't have the details here, but it appears to me that he was forced out of ECU. And then he moved to Las Vegas in 2018. He found a job as an adjunct professor at Roseman University, which is in Las Vegas. He worked there from 2018 to 2022. The reason he worked in their MBA program, which was discontinued. And so he lost his job essentially in 2022. And then he was unable to find another job. And so his argument is that he was discriminated against because of his age on merit, that he, his argument essentially was, and this comes from his letters, which we'll get to in a minute, but he had the talent and the experience and the wisdom to teach. And why wasn't he being hired? And he was arguing that a lot of it had to do with his age. I mean, he was bringing in a lot of other factors, but I, I don't know, you know, I don't know. It's a, I think it's a complicated issue. I, th I think it's probably not just education or academics that is less likely to hire someone who's 67. It's probably most companies in general these days. So I, I don't think there's any specific discriminatory practices here. Some of it depends on the department you're applying to. Some of it depends on the needs of that department, right? Some of it depends on people they've hired, I don't, you know, there's, there's a lot of variables. So I, I don't, I clearly don't think it's one thing. I do think it's, it's probably more difficult for an older adult to find a teaching job at his age, but clearly this type of response is unexpected and unusual. This is certainly an outlier. I mean, it, obviously there's other ways to deal with that. There's, there's other ways to find work uh, if he needs it. Yeah. Natalie states that this guy felt like he was wronged, but he was forced out of a previous position. And we might wonder why that was also. Right. Right. Exactly. Why did he even, why was he forced out? So yeah, there's a lot there. Well, I, I think you start getting some sense of that when you look at his letters. So before he was subdued by police on the UNLV campus, he had submitted 22 letters to various people 
we're not going to mention those people's names out of respect for their privacy, but we actually were able to get a copy of some of his letters and his writing. And this is, this is, this is, this is clearly someone who is a little bit idiosyncratic to say the least, but let, let's start with, let me start with just the, the rage in these letters. I mean, this isn't, this isn't someone who's angry. This is someone who's enraged by his inability to find jobs and everything, everywhere this guy looks, there's a grievance. He's been wronged. He's the victim. And, and it's just all over his writing. Almost every before, sentence of his writing. Before you begin, let me just explain that these, these letters are, you know, we have all of the letters and they will, they will be on Patreon right after this live concludes. If you want to see all of the letters, we have them. I also want to thank everyone that's here. If you could hit like, and subscribe. That means so much. Thank you for your super chats and thank you for your questions. I'm starring a lot of them to ask John at a later time. So thank you for your great questions. Go ahead with these letters, John. Let me let me just read. I'm going to read the first sentence of the first letter. Again, I'm not going to mention the names of, of the targets of these letters, but this will just give you a flavor. Like this first sentence of the first letter really conveys so much, but I'll, I'm going to read this. Again, this is one of the Polito letters. He's sending these to, to people that he's clearly, he has grievances with. He says, quote, and he starts with, so the first word should be your, as in Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. He spells it U-R. And the reason I note that, by the way, is because the writing in these letters is, is not particularly good, number one. For somebody who calls himself Dr. 160 IQ or 160 IQ, so he refers to himself by his IQ, supposedly this guy has a 160 IQ. That, by the way, is, we could debate because there's there's, <laughs> questions, there's questions I have about that. But let let's just for the for the moment, let's just go with that. So, but his internet test said it. His internet IQ test that he printed out one day. Oh yeah, his right. Yeah. His yeah, his internet test said that he had an IQ of 160. So clearly he does. But he refers to himself in these letters as IQ 160 or Doctor 160 IQ. Which, by the way, he he sees as a badge of honor. He sees as a sign of his superiority. So he takes his IQ to be clearly indicative of the fact that us normal human beings are inferior, and we, you know we we don't have his IQ. Therefore, we need to bow down to him in some sense, or at least acknowledge his superior intelligence. So, first of all, I think it's important to note that he he equates his intelligence with self worth. And that's all he sees self-worth as consisting of. And obviously that's a problem because he doesn't factor in emotions. He doesn't factor in social intelligence. He doesn't factor in relationships. Um, most psychologists would tell you, I would be the first among those to say that IQ is a very limited picture of a complete human being. So I think he's, he's making a, he's, he's kind of showing us, number one, what he values He's showing us his insecurities around his IQ because more also people that kind of tell you how smart they are, typically that's total insecurity. They're, they're saying that to cover up the fact that they don't feel that smart and they probably aren't that smart. But he's also, he's also using that as an indicator of his personhood, that he's seen that as you know, representative of who he is. And in a way that's kind of sad, but. As a, uh... As Tiff Knox states, it's it more like doctor, I can't read a room. And McSpunky suggests he just buy a Corvette, bro. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, right. I agree with the Corvette comment. Yeah, just buy the Corvette and get it out of your system, dude. Like, you know, don't, instead of murdering people, get the vet, feel better about yourself. 
I recommend that he put a decal on the side that says Dr. 160 IQ, if that makes him go. feel better, right? Because that's his thing. <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, let me just read. I'm going to read from this first letter. Again, I, he, it's you are, not your, not a, not a normal. First by the red way, flag. He, yeah, first red, always a red flag. <laughs> by the way, his, his PhD from the University of Georgia was in operations management. He also received an MBA from Duke University. So his specialty is business, clearly not English, but I'll read this quote, your, 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 you are, your S for brains, unionized third tier Dean frat boy and his crew at ECU criminally forced about 18 tenured faculty of age to abandon their tenure using straight up line paperwork and line students and threats to destroy their healthcare by firing them. And then he, he ends that same this is the end of that same letter. He ends it by saying, keep screwing over faculty, keep sowing the wind and keep reaping the whirl, whirlwind. And then he ends with, he ends every one of these, these letters with capiche. He spells capiche, by the way, with a K. Capiche is spelled with a C. <laughs> so clearly not an English major, but this, I think this starts giving you a little sense of these letters are just completely filled with rage. I I'm going to read a few other sentences from some of these letters. Yeah. And really quick, someone's asking who these letters are to. These are two other professors that he had grievances with. They they were collected by police. They were mailed the day before or the day of what happened. The day, the day of, the morning of. The day of, the morning of. And so police went out and they were able to get all of these letters. They did not have a return address on them. And I just want to say that I have seen these letters again we can't post them publicly because they are so bad, but we will, we will post them uncensored on our Patreon account after this, but you are skipping the worst because we can't say what is in here publicly. Go ahead, John, share a few other things. Yeah. I'll, let me just read snippets from some of these letters to give people a sense of, of who this guy is. Here's another part of this is written to another person who I want to identify this is the last sentence of that particular letter. Quote, now you know you are a big, fat, arrogant nobody. Nobody's in caps. You where you belong, turd. Capiche? Question mark. He ends, again, he ends everything with capiche? Question mark. Um, which is, I guess, in this case, is like an exclamation point about how he's superior and he wants you to understand his point of view or... He's reinforcing the idea, apparently, that, that his point of view is superior. But the you are where you belong, by the way. So he doesn't have a verb in there. It's just you where you belong. And again, this is somebody with a 160 IQ who lets us know how smart he is, like doesn't have a doesn't have a very good understanding of grammar or use of grammar. In fact, one of the interesting things about these letters is how poorly written they are. And how the sentences are, are to a large extent fragmented that I see a lot of this, not only as thoughts, but the writing tends to be very fractured. And I, I think that's, to me, that's really important because it, it really gets, starts giving us a glimpse into the mind of this guy that I, I think that you're seeing a mind here. That's very fractured. You're seeing a mind that's very split and fragmented that he can't, he can't develop kind of a cohesive account of himself and I think that'll be an important point we'll get to later. But there's a real, what I would call a failure, identity failure. I think there's a real failure here to really form kind of this coherent sense of who he is. And 
You can see that in the writing. The writing is just all these expletives and this, it's just filled with rage. I think of Gary Gilmore, Norman Mallard's Executioner's Song that was put to death in Utah. Gary Gilmore had a famous quote, which is murders vent rage. That almost all murders to some degree, maybe not all, but many murders have this underlying component of rage. So I think, and that's a point that Langman makes, by the way, about mass shooters and mass murderers, that rage is really one of the key elements that sets the stage for mass murder. If you don't have this underlying rage, a lot of times you're not going to get to the point where you're going to act on that, or you're not going to get to the point where you're going to act so viciously. So here in these letters, you see this underlying theme of rage. It's a motif across every single one of these. It's just so prevalent and so deep with this guy. A lot of people are saying, a, a lot of people are even mentioning, this reminds them of Brian Koberger a little bit, sort of. Yeah, right. They're, exactly. That's that's a good point. Speaking of Koberger, there's, in that first sentence I read about everyone lying and students lying and everyone out trying, you know, trying to get him and destroy him, there's, there's paranoia there too. So you, in addition to the rage, you sort of have this underlying paranoia. You have a lot of grandiosity with the IQ and how smart he is. And the way he talks about people, you also have this trait of callousness, which we've talked about how callousness is a can be a really prominent trait in psychopaths. So I'm not saying this guy's a psychopath. I don't know his history. I wouldn't diagnose that. But you definitely see this element of a lack of empathy and callousness in, this, in these letters. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. Other other people are mentioning it reminds them of Elliot Roger as well, sort of a manifesto. Yeah. We'll, we can get back to that in a little bit. I starred their comment because it was good. So we can get back to that. Let me just pick up on a few more. Of, of uh, Let me give you a little bit more of a flavor of this guy's writing. Again, this is enough to another person. This is another letter. He starts with you, not Y-O-U, you, as in the letter U, which... And again, no. I mean, this, this, he sounds like I sound when I'm texting my friends, Yeah, you know, but that's right. one thing. <laughs> I'm not a professor nor calling myself Dr. One, whatever IQ. Yeah. Dr. IQ, Dr. 160 IQ. It's a really peculiar thing. You know, I don't know, maybe I could make an argument that he's in a hurry. You know, he's trying to, maybe he's trying to get these letters written because he's planned these acts and he, Maybe he feels like he doesn't have time, but I mean, the way they're written, he's not including verbs. It's not well written. It's not well done. But anyway, so no. quote, this is, he starts with you, capital U, not Y-O-U, you, you just, and again, there's no R, there's no verb. You, normal, normal people would say you are just, he starts with you just, quote, you just a smart mouth, do nothing, caustic, spoiled, rich brat kid, Moron, C-word. And again, you, capital U, you just bully beat down everybody or flirt your skirt to go to get ahead, to get somebody to write all your papers. I'm going to continue with a few more snippets from the same letter. Quote, you, and again, you, not Y-O-U, you just a lazy, no talent, no brain, think you entitled scold. Scold is in caps. Yeah, you are, and again, not Y-O-U, <laughs> you uh scold in caps. I'll I'll continue with a few more snippets to give a flavor for what we're dealing with here. Please go on. This is another person, another letter. Quote, 
destroy life b schools don't hire old professors unless buddy system i'm like what <laughs> uh okay i mean this is this is his writing there's there's no verbs doesn't make a lot of sense continues thrown to the street after a lifetime of good work tenure earned the last 10 years of work and pay before planned retirement stolen so he's in this particular one he's telling us what his grievance is, that he had tenure, that his life's work was thrown away, uh, his retirement was stolen, essentially. So presumably, I don't know, uh, you know, presumably this is someone whose finances were in shambles. And these letters seem to indicate that that maybe he lost his retirement. I, I can't confirm that. But so there could certainly be some financial grievances here, too. Lamisa wants to know if he's using Siri to voice his text. <laughs> it's a great question. But but somebody else wants to know, too, if this could be some disorganized thinking of sorts. Yes. I, so I think it's schizophrenia or disorganized speaking, or is this just someone I, that probably doesn't have a professor job for a reason? Some of it could be Siri. That's true. Some of it could be dictated. That explains some of it. But even if you I, dictate, I normally you'll go in and double check. I mean, I uh, the best way to describe it is that the, the writing is not super coherent. It's what I would call fractured. And I think to me, that kind of shows a, a bit of a fractured mind that this is yeah. someone who just, he can't, he's struggling to get it together, but he can't. I don't know if that means that there's some type of psychosis here or thought disorder, but I wouldn't go that far. But certainly this is someone who's not at the top of his game in terms of putting together a coherent argument. Yeah. Well, Steph is mentioning that Siri actually has an IQ of 161. So it wouldn't be Siri. <laughs> yeah. And the other people mentioned Siri wouldn't spell you with just the letter. They would actually. That's true. Uh, someone else is asking if these letters um, were typed or handwritten. That's a good question. I believe they were typed. At least we, we, we are seeing them typed. Yeah. They seem to be typed. Yeah. I don't think they were handwritten, but I don't know for sure. We just have the type. I believe they were typed. Yeah. Here's another person, another targetless person. Quote, you, and again, you is not Y-O-U. There's no you are here. I, I think Siri would pick up on you are, by the way. Yeah. Quote, Siri you would. Just, quote, you just a corrupt little, little is not L-I-T-T-L-E, little is L-I-L. You just a corrupt little, little pile of dumbass, amoral, backwards, fifth tier hillbillies. Next time, try something refreshing, hiring on merit. Capiche? Here's, again, another person. Quote you, and again, same thing, just to you. You nothing but a self-serving, arrogant line numbskull with four crap average regional JD degree and no moral compass whatsoever. Someday God will see you choke on your dumbass pronouns. Capiche? Question mark. <laughs> you know, somebody mentioned that, that this reminds themselves uh, minus the rage of when they're in a manic phase. Could this be a little bit of manic writing all these two? Or is that not something you uh, want to get to? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't know enough to, I mean, there could be, sure, there could be some mania here. It does feel a little like that. Or you could say maybe there's kind of an obsessive quality here yes. in the sense that this is clearly someone who has grievances that he just, this is, you know, grievances that are a decade old or more that he just can't resolve. He's going back to these grievances over and over and over again. And that brings me, by the way, that brings me to another element of Langman's research, which is what Langman, Peter Langman calls extreme reactivity. 
And so extreme reactivity is when someone feels like a victim and when they feel like they have to seek vengeance. So obviously this guy feels very victimized and there's very much a sense here in which I think he's seeking vengeance, that he wants vengeance. So I think in that sense, there's something that I sometimes refer to as, I talked about this with Koberger, right? It's called murder by proxy. And the idea is that by murdering a professor or multiple professors, he's, he's also in his mind's eye, he's murdering all his intended targets. In other words, he's murdering the whole class of professors. Anyone who's a professor, he sees as someone that he has a grievance with. And so murder by proxy is essentially taking this class of professors that he sees who wronged him or these school administrators, these, these college administrators who have wronged him, and it's seeking revenge by going out and doing what he did, which is murdering specific professors that he doesn't know. And that's for him in many ways, in his mind's eye, that's sufficient because he's, he's, take, he's, he's seeking vengeance against a broad group of people. And so even if he can't reach his intended targets, he feels like he's doing that. That makes sense. In other words, that's why he didn't need these targets. He needed to get this out and tell them what right. he thought. But then he did this to someone else or someone with their job to say by proxy. Okay. That's helpful. A lot of people are asking about that. Like, did why why not the actual targets? Why did he write these letters if he wasn't going to go then hurt the actual targets? So, okay. Yeah, and again, it, um, drawing the analogy with Kohlberger, you know, Kohlberger or even Elliot Roger, Kohlberger, some of his victims were members of a sorority. And I think Kohlberger felt like he wasn't a part of that world and that he might never be a part of that world. In fact, in Elliot Roger too, they felt rejected by this kind of exclusive world of sororities and fraternities, and they felt like they could never be a part of it. So you get this element, I think, of murder by proxy by killing or murdering a couple of sorority people or victims, then in some ways you're, you're, you feel like you're addressing that larger class, that larger group of sorority members in general. You lose weight, it comes back. You lose it again, it comes back again. And if this cycle sounds familiar, you're not alone and there is a better way. What if you could take a weekly shot to lose weight and keep it off? That's where Roe comes in. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. The Roe Body Program pairs a weekly shot with lifestyle changes so you can lose weight and keep it off. Roe handles it all, even insurance paperwork. If eligible, you have access to a provider on demand. You can sign up online from home, no doctor's visits. Average weight loss, get this, 15 to 20% in a year with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria do apply. Go to road.co slash hidden. Sign up today and you will pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash hidden. Is anyone else struggling with what to wear these days, feeling like styles have changed so much? Enter Armoire. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion. I signed up, I took a style quiz, and they offered suggestions that would best match me. The more I rent, the more on point the styles get. Whether you are planning a date night, packing for a conference, or headed to a black tie event, you will have the perfect outfit without facing a fitting room with fluorescent lights. With my Armoire clothing rental, I feel brave trying new styles, 
because I know it's not forever. It's just for a week or a month. And my favorite thing, having someone else do my laundry when I'm ready for new clothes. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash hidden true crime. That's armoire.style slash A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash hidden true crime to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Why do so many dogs suffer from health issues? It turns out that actress Katherine Heigl, who helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says that she is seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dogs' foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She has made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing and see incredible changes in their dog's health. Look, John and I are dog lovers and are currently searching for the perfect family edition and how to keep them healthy and happy. So if we can help keep your best friend healthy too, we are happy. Go to badlandfood.com dot com slash hidden true crime and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hidden true crime. Referring to your recent point about murder by proxy, someone asked, why did he write the letters but only send them the morning of the shootings if he actually did intend to murder those people that day? They would have never read the letters. Exactly what murder by proxy is, is what you're saying. He knew he couldn't necessarily murder them, each person. So that's what this mass shooting was about. So I think, right, this idea of murder by proxy explains some of that. But I, I, he knows he's not going to reach a lot of these targets. But I think he knows also that he's sending a message to his targets that even though they're probably going to get these letters after he's deceased, he's sending them a message, letting them, he's instilling a little bit of fear in them and saying, look, this could have been you. Lolo writes, his letter reminds me of Elliot Rogers' manifesto. Was he married? Could this be what a retired incel looks like? If so, will we see more of this? This was kind of loaded. Maybe I should have waited for this, but I thought all three of her questions were so good. and things yeah. you might want to touch on. So thank you, Lolo. Yeah, of course, that was that was one of the first questions I had was this, did this guy have any social support network? Did he have any social supports? And I, as far as I can tell, the answer is no. He seems to have been single, but I haven't confirmed that. I don't know if he's ever been married. Don't know if he had kids. It looks to me, based on initial reports, that he was a bit of a loner and that he wasn't married, but I could be wrong about that. So we're, I think we're going to learn more about him. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I think this idea of a older adult incel is just really interesting. And yes, I, I, that that could be exactly what it looks like. Yeah. And I, I know one question you wanted to tackle, perhaps maybe more towards the end of this was, will we see more of this? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. I, you know, I'm sometimes I'm actually surprised that we don't see more of these types of scenarios with, with older adults that have been rejected or that feel some sense of rejection or social isolation or have a lot of grievances because it, we'll talk about this later, but let's talk about an adolescent shooter, for example. One of the issues with an adolescent shooter is I think that they, there's a certain amount of hopelessness about their future. There's a real failure to see a worthwhile future. 
Um, but with older adult shooters or mass murderers, you have the combined sense, I think, in which there's less of a future to see. So potentially there's there's more hopelessness in the sense that their future is by definition going to be less than an adolescent. But you also have this kind of sense in which their past has been plagued with failures. It's been filled with failures. So you have kind of this combination of an potentially of an unfulfilled life or a, a life filled with a disappointing past. And then you have this hopelessness about the future. So you kind of have this double whammy, I think, with older adult shooters like Polito, where, you know, getting to that point of, let's say, murder-suicide or murder or mass, mass murder, it seems to me like there could be a much lower threshold for a tipping point in those in these types of scenarios than there is for an adolescent even. I think adolescents, that I think in both cases, you kind of have these, like, what I call identity failures in the sense that I think with Polito, he's really struggling to figure out what his life means at that point. And with adolescents, I think they're really trying to figure out who they are and how they fit in with peers. And so you, I think in both cases, you're really kind of, you're looking at people that, to use Langman's term, uh, have desperate identities. In fact, Langman wrote a research article called Desperate Identities, which is an, which is an amazing article for anybody interested in this type of work. Peter Langman's Desperate Identities is probably one of the best papers I've read on the subject. But there's very much a sense, I think, in which these acts of violence are are reparative in the sense that they're they're really an attempt to repair a damaged self. Lisa Ling writes, former faculty here, professors have cliques and he didn't fit in, wrong clothes, he smoked cigarettes, not married, not getting published. There's been a lot of opinions on this. Yeah. You know, let's not forget older generations placed uh, some importance on job titles and careers. That was what they were taught to find them. Take that away from someone. What identity do they have? Right. So many great comments here. Debbie, I want to say I'm so sorry about what happened to you as well. Debbie mentions that mental health is not addressed well in this country and we need to do a better job, which is why we're talking about this today that uh, she lost her brother after he jumped out of her car, actually. Thank you, everyone, for adding to this conversation. It's an important one. Yeah, I agree with those comments. So I, again, I would stress that somebody like Polito, he recognizes that he can't go back. He can't go back and repair his past. And so, I mean, you know, I think there's potentially, I think, a certain amount of mourning about the past in the sense that you can't redo it, right? And so, you know, with with an adolescent, at least. They can make mistakes, and uh, even if they are, there's a certain amount of hopelessness, they can take risks and make mistakes, and they can kind of create their future much more than someone like Polito. Yes. Just Kidding asks, Dr. John, could this be from a head blow or a neurological event, like an undiagnosed stroke? Of course, this is not, you probably have to say this isn't your, that's not what you can delve into, right? It could be, but yeah, that would be I, that would be on, be beyond the scope of what I know about this case. Right now, I'm operating with the assumption that this doesn't involve any type of traumatic brain injury or stroke or neurological damage. But maybe, sure, that could be part of this. It could be a combination of all the things that people have mentioned. Maybe some type of manic episode. Maybe a stroke. Yeah, I mean, it, right. I think there's always complexity in these types of scenarios. Rebecca asks, Dr. John, what is a healthy way to deal with rage? I assume therapy, question mark? Yeah, I, I think, sure, this would be an argument for mental health practitioners or someone to seek therapy of some sort. 
or just some type of outlet, some type of healthy way to cope, like whatever hiking or, you know, Corvette therapy, I mean, you know, driving, I don't know, you know, working out, I mean, whatever, whatever way that someone is able to cope with stress, I think would be important in this situation, which also speaks to another important issue here. And that is that many mass shooters really lack resilience. They're, they tend to be very rigid. They tend to be very controlled they they just lack resilience and so in that sense they're they're not able to develop these healthier coping strategies or or ways of coping with adversity and i think over time you see, with this particular person you see that lack of resilience really taking a toll probably cc asks have any of his former students come forward that's a great question because some of them have or or one did a long interview with somebody yeah a couple yes the I've heard a couple of interviews with former students. One of them talked about the fact that he referred to Mensa quite a bit. Mensa is an organization that accepts people based on uh, high IQs. So he was he was sort of obsessed with being in Mensa. And again, this this would speak to his Doctor One Hundred and Sixty IQ. He talked a lot about being in Mensa and how smart he was. And he also apparently talked a lot about how he loved Las Vegas and going to Las Vegas. And uh, the Wynn Hotel and Casino. Another student, by the way, so that student's name was Michelle Wade. Another student, his name is Paul Whittington. He attended classes with Anthony Polito at, at East Carolina University. He said that he would talk about negative student reviews. So I, I think that's really interesting. He, he used to tell the students that he couldn't believe that he would get some negative reviews. And he wouldn't get many. He'd get maybe one or two a semester. But he couldn't let those go. So that also speaks to this idea of this insecurity, this sense of inadequacy about his self-image, about his intelligence, that he's very threatened by these negative student reviews. So in that sense, by the way, I highly recommend that he didn't start. I'm glad he didn't start a YouTube channel. (laughs) Right. There was a question actually on our last Hidden Hour where we interviewed the juror, Tom, in the Lori Vallow case. And you mentioned that he asked the question. This is when Tom actually interviewed you. I recommend everyone watching that. It was a couple of weeks ago. Tom was a juror on the Lori Vallow Daybell trial, and he interviewed John for the majority of the show. And he asked really about how you radicalize someone. And your answer to that was that the main way you radicalize someone is they must have a grievance. And I think that's what we see here. And I think that's important then for us to discuss too, because if our, our purpose is to, you know, spot red flags or concerns or or know how we're feeling or checking with ourselves or our loved ones, at what point, I, I mean, I have grievances, you have grievances, but at what point do these grievances become so deep and insidious that they can radicalize someone or make them go to the extreme like this? Yeah, I, I think that this idea of grievance is the, the most common way to radicalize someone is to give them a lot of grievances and then to throw in some threats and some fear and some stress. That'll usually do the trick. So here, I think he, he already has a lot of grievances about the way he was treated in the past and the threat. There's a threat to his financial well-being when he can't get a job. There's a threat to his security when he can't get a job. There's probably a lot of stress 
around being unemployed and probably struggling financially. So I think all of those come together to create probably these revenge fantasies, which again, that would be tip, that would be common. That would be what happened with Koberger, that a lot of times to get to the point where you act out through a mass shooting, it's not just the grievance, it's also this need for vengeance or revenge. And so you start fantasizing about ways to get even. You start fantasizing about ways to not feel like a victim anymore. You start fantasizing about fantasizing about ways to repair your damaged self. And and that's not a conscious strategy, by the way. That when you want to when you seek to repair that damaged self, it's more a feeling, it's more of a emotion. That you're seeking to violence becomes a substitute for this feeling of disrepair. Thank you. A lot of great comments here. Someone said also, how do you avoid grievances? Stop watching so much cable news, someone suggested. <laughs> There's some truth to that, yeah. I think there is some concern though when things cause such deep grievances. We have to check ourselves. This isn't just about learning warning signs in other people. We have to check ourselves and also make sure we're in a good spot too, you know? Right. There's so. there's there's a lot of grievances in this country right now. So uh, hence, there's probably a lot of concerns about people acting out on those grievances. Yes. Anything else? People are bringing up, I want to say this, people are bringing up Kevin Frankie. He had bad student reviews as well, and he was really furious over them. And we brought this up on our channel, uh, some of his student reviews and how furious he was, which brings me to so, some breaking news. People, It's been floating around YouTube that Ruby Frankie is getting a plea deal. You're accurate. We shared on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash into crime. Ruby Frankie's attorney requesting a waiver hearing, which is essentially confirming this rumor that they want to get together and talk about it. Let's hear, hear what this is and that she might be throwing Jody Hildebrand under the bus. But a lot is going on with our other cases. And I want all of you to know that John and I are following all of them and discussing them at our kitchen table like we did this morning. Tim Ballard too. Tim Ballard too. All right. Go ahead, John. So this this thing about negative student reviews, it, it's interesting because I want to let me let me read kind of an interesting counter to that, which is on his LinkedIn page, which was taken down the day of the murders. He wrote this, and I'm going to read this because I think it it gives us some more insight into this idea of negative student reviews. He said, "This is a quote from his LinkedIn page: The greatest gifts and takeaways I possess from my many years within higher education." are the many kind and positive comments students made regarding my instruction and disposition towards them. So on LinkedIn, he's saying, he's saying what essentially what stood out during his academic career were, quote, the, the many kind and positive comments students made. So wow. it's, interesting, it's interesting that when those comments aren't kind and positive, he doesn't have the resilience to handle it. That is very telling. He wrote that on LinkedIn. I can't believe you found yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. So, so I, his, his his most positive thing about his career is the affirmation from students that he's great. Which which also shows, again, if we're talking about kind of this damaged sense of self, it shows that he's completely reliant on other people's validation for positive feelings about himself, for self-worth. So he's saying essentially when students give him good reviews, he feels good about himself. And when they don't, he feels horrible about himself. So, I mean, again, that would speak to this idea of inadequacy and insecurity that he's really fragile, that he's seeking validation from students and probably other faculty members. And as I said, you know, if, if, if he had a YouTube channel, 
I think he would learn fairly quickly that, you know, constant validation is, is just not something that you're going to, that you're going to get. And, and you, that, that you can expect if you want to maintain a healthy sense of self. So fortunately he wasn't on YouTube or maybe he would have acted out sooner. Well, I think a lot of people have been giving you some wonderfully affirming comments tonight, but, but yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm just, I'm exaggerating here. I'm saying that it's just the nature of the beast. When somebody puts themselves out publicly, that there's going to be people that disagree with you. And that's, that's just normal. Well, let's talk about that, though, too. That is something that's increasing. It used to be that there were such thing as public student reviews. That wasn't a thing. It used to be that people couldn't leave comments on a news story after the anchor finished reading them or after a journalist put out a poorly written story. There wasn't such thing as comments. This this new this new era, this new age we're living in where we can comment on everything, where we can attack people, where we can mock people from our couch or even our bed without getting up is new. And I do think it is affecting, we talk about how it affects children, that there's more depression in children. I think it's surely affecting the older generation where they didn't have to deal with this, you know, just a couple of decades ago. And now they are. So I think it, I think bringing that up also plays a part. Social media is uh, brutal and can be brutal for people that are especially rigid and are, are not looking for fame or fortune, just wanting to be a good professor. And yet they still have to deal with that. So, so I think that's something important to bring up. You yeah, did, that's, that's you, that's you're not even point. on social media. You're not even on social media and you're having to deal with it. Well, you are now you're on YouTube, but you know, before John was never on social media. So this is a new world for you too. Yeah, I agree. This idea, that's a good point. This idea of student reviews is fairly new. I don't remember, I certainly don't remember giving my professor's reviews when I was in college as an undergraduate, so, or even grad school. So that must have, that probably was new to him, that he probably wasn't accustomed, or he wasn't used to that, or he wasn't expecting that. And so when that was implemented and he would start to get negative reviews, he probably struggled to really cope with that. And to think that it could have possibly affected his future hiring too. I'm sure that's something that people now look at, you know, past student reviews. So. Right. And, And again, if these letters are indicative of kind of his state of mind, then it's not hard to see how student reviews could really have impacted him negatively at some point. Yeah. People are referring to people as keyboard bullies. There are certainly many of those and they do affect people. And it says, the, and then Beach Lady says, bad professor reviews used to just happen in the cafeteria when you ate, right? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And it, it does seem like it impacted him very deeply. So what could, or, or do you have something next on your? Um, I just, you know, I wanted to read one more letter, something he wrote in a letter, because I, this really stood out to me as kind of a, a type of projection. I think he's kind of giving us a little insight into who he is. Uh, He's writing to someone else, but I thought these sentences were sort of interesting as a reflection of who he is. And again, these are from the letters that he wrote to other professors. Quote, sooner or later, the airplane school faculty faculty will be sick of your sass mouth, know nothing, do nothing, arrogant bully routine. And soon enough, even though they are weak spine, they will find a way to drive you out. Then you be then you be, again, no verbs, then you be for the streets for good, no more career and into the sewers where you belong. Capiche? 
Capiche. Wow. Wow. So he's he's afraid, you know, he's telling, I mean, he's telling someone else, you're going to lose your career, you're going to end up in the sewer, you're going to be homeless. And, and those are obviously the very things he's threatened by. So there's a lot of projection going on in these letters too. In addition to the rage, in addition to the sense of victimization, there's a lot of projection. You know, there's there's concerns about his future, about his fears about what might happen to him. So in that sense, I think these letters really are, as someone mentioned about Elliot Roger and his manifesto, there, there's some similarities there. Paige Barker is saying, my grandma always used to say in quotes, what others think about me is none of my business, end quote. I've heard that quote too. That's why I brought this up. But that's really not true anymore. It's true. Now what people think of us, even when we don't want to know, is our business and it can be difficult to handle. Someone else just mentioned that there is a dramatic loss of respect. Thank you, Susan, for our elders, or there can be ageism. Tiff says, this is so bizarre about Capiche. He was fawning over gangster power. Someone else did mention the Godfather. (laughs) So anything else on the, on the, on the schedule tonight? So I I think that's the crux of my, of my presentation or our talk tonight. You mentioned, we talked about Stephen Paddock a little at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Paddock is, is, as you pointed out, he's the, single largest mass murderer in the United States history. That event also occurred in Las Vegas. I want to talk about some parallels with Paddock. So we don't really know. It's interesting about Paddock because Paddock's motivations were never identified. In other words, in this particular case, for example, so when police talk about motivation, they're they're trying to pull the most, probably the most obvious motivation they can find. They're not They're not going to be like us. They're not going to be like hidden and try to find the hidden motivations. They're going to say, well, the motivation here was uh, unemployment or right his being unable to find a job. So, but with Paddock, they said there were no identifiable motivations. If you look a little closely at Paddock, however, it's interesting because let me just talk a little about what we know about Stephen Paddock. He was 64 years old. He was a former financial auditor and real estate businessman. So he was a business person like Polito. He had no children. He was divorced twice with a girlfriend. Uh, His girlfriend of several years, however, described him as becoming more distant and aloof and almost non-existent in the relationship during the last year or so. He was a heavy drinker. He was a loner. His father had a history. uh, His father was a bank robber, a convicted bank robber. So he was a convicted felon. Stephen Paddock was also a high-stakes gambler who over the last two years, lost a lot of money. So he had a lot of financial setbacks. He His form of gambling was video poker. So even though he was an high-stakes gambler, he didn't play poker, so he wasn't social. So his gambling was essentially solo. It was by himself. He did it alone. Hmm. So I think if you those – are, those are some of the things we do know about Stephen Paddock. I think if you look at that, I think what emerges is, is in many ways a very similar profile to Polito in the sense that Polito, as far as we know, didn't have any significant relationships. He didn't have any children. That Polito was suffering financially, apparently, as Stephen Paddock was. That Stephen Paddock, I think, had kind of this sense of hopelessness about his future, given his financial losses. I, You know, I, I think what, when they say that Paddock had no specific motivations, I think they're having trouble identifying his specific grievances. But what's interesting about Polito and Paddock is I don't – 
I don't necessarily know if you need a specific grievance. You just have, you know, with Paddock, I think you have this sense that his life wasn't fulfilled and that he too was disappointed by his past and that he too didn't really see a future that was worth living. And so you don't know how people are going to express that kind of existential angst or that existential sense of, of not belonging. You know, both of these guys didn't feel like they were part of the community. You know, Polito, mm-hmm. Polito not getting a job at the university again, I think that really impacted him in the sense that he was expelled from the university community. He had no family or no, he had no sense of home, no sense of community. And I think that was true of Paddock too. The paddock really was very much alone and isolated, and he lived in Mesquite, which is a few hours, like an hour and a half from Vegas. He also was in business. He put a lot of stress on money. I think there are similarities there. So obviously Paddock expressed, you know, I don't know specifically what Paddock's rages were or what his what he was angry about, but surely they must have existed. Absolutely. My- my there, guess, he didn't leave a lot of clues that that was the conclusion yeah. from police. I remember because I was a reporter on this case, I, we waited and we waited and waited to learn what the end discovery was. Why, what was the motive of Paddock? And it was undetermined in the end. There was no, no motive that they ever gave us. That was one of those major mysteries of the largest mass shooting in our nation's history that there was no solid answers, no manifesto. If you, if you look at Paddock though, and I mean, this is, I'm going to resort to like really wild speculation here, but when your father's a bank robber, I think you're getting some clues. I think, (laughs) I think it's fair to say that Stephen Paddock did not come from the most, the healthiest family. I think he probably came from a pretty dysfunctional family. My guess is there were some childhood wounds probably around money or finances. And when he lost his money gambling over the last several years before his, his mass shooting, my guess is there must've been some, some wounds, some childhood wounds that were, that were opened again, that were aggravated. And we don't, again, I don't know anything about Polito's childhood, but my guess is if we, if we learned a little more, we'd probably find some childhood wounds that are kind of behind some of this, or at least, potentially play a role in some of this. Yeah, that that helps. So, I mean, any thoughts on what we can do as a society? Then you mentioned community that resonated with me. Like there is definitely been a loss of community, I feel like, in the past, you know, decade as well, where we do so much online and we order Uber Eats and <laughs> not as many of us go to church. And, you know, people are finding their communities in different places. And it's not as simple for many people that, you know, are used to it being a certain way just to be more aware, you know, some people mentioned mental health costs money as well, you know, to, to seek therapy out costs yeah, money and it's difficult. And now it's teletherapy that still isn't going to add a, you know, just any thoughts and what we can do or be aware of. Uh, it's yeah, it's a really big issue. Certainly I think mental health is a part of it. Somebody mentioned earlier about kind of a loss of respect for elders. You know, there's, there's so many social changes it's not just a loss of respect for elders. It's a loss of respect for experience. It's a loss of respect for expertise. In today's world, when you can get on Wikipedia and think you know everything, experience and expertise are not as valued. Uh, and true. I, and I, I think that's a problem too, that you're not going to value. Let's, let's assume that Polito had a lot of knowledge and experience and wisdom that he can impart to students. That's probably not going to be as valued today. 
I'm not saying that's the case. His his letter would would not suggest that at all. By the way, his letters. But if, but we if he felt the, that way, if yeah. we give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, there 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 is less of a place for Anthony Polito in today's world than there was even like five years ago. Yeah, but I it, agree with that. It, it's probably a, a fun. It's probably a part of lar- larger social trends that are, you know, I don't know that are taking place. Yeah. Well, just things to be aware of. I just thank you for mentioning that. It just sometimes feels so hopeless and helpless. We keep seeing these again and again and again, and it's heartbreaking and upsetting. And so if we can just be a little bit more aware of what someone might be going through or how things are changing. Yeah. An experience. You're right. When someone can be a TikTok star at 16 and bring you all the latest stories. It's hard to realize that, you know, it doesn't matter how many years of journalism you have in you. You know what I mean? So it's true what you're saying. Yeah. Right. When so, the- or, if, or, or when people can armchair diagnose, you know, narcissism or borderline or, or yeah. look it up on Wikipedia and take the internet test. What point is a psychologist? Yeah. Same, right. Same. <laughs> well, we all know that like 90% of everyone we know are narcissists. So, Right. According so, to all armchair diagnoses, yes. Yeah, yeah. I right. It's yeah. The it's interesting questions. Uh, you know, the role of expertise in our society these days, the role of experience and wisdom, whatever that is. Yeah, those are those are all I think under pressure these days. Right. Well, you've certainly left us with some things to think about. Thank you, babe, for also showing up here with COVID. We need to let you go. So. So there's been a lot going on in this house. Thank you, babe. We appreciate <laughs> yeah. you. I appreciate you. And it's it's good to reconnect with our gems tonight. We've missed you guys. Truly, truly have. So yeah, we'll be doing a bit more next week. A couple of final things before we leave. I have a final thought, but I did want to get back to the victims. I just want to give a, a mention of the victims mention their names and, and what departments they were in since, you know, I, as I mentioned, I've have some affiliation with UNLV. Naoko Takamuro, 69, was in Japanese studies. Patricia Navarro Velez, she's 39. She was in the accounting department at UNLV. Jerry Chang, 64, information systems. I just want to express my condolences to the victims and their families. And I think it's important to, to recognize them and put them at the forefront of all of this. I want to read a quote from The Great Gatsby, <laughs> which I think is going to be relevant to my closing here. This is from near the very end of The Great Gatsby. This is Nick Carrington, Carraway, who's the, the narrator. He says, quote, Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster we will stretch out our arms farther. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. The reason I wanted to talk about that quote is because I, I think it kind of speaks to the issues we've been talking about tonight, about as much as we dream of a future without limits, like Gatsby did, as much as we kind of dream of this perfect life and these perfect loves we're going to have, that the past always haunts us. The past in some ways always pulls us back. And I think that would be the case with kind of these older adult mass shooters that there's almost this haunting from their past that they can't overcome. And so I think as the future begins to recede into the past, I think sometimes our dreams slip away a little bit. 
with Gatsby, for example. And when that happens, when our dreams start slipping away and we recognize that we don't have as much time to try to chase those dreams, I think we're also reminded a little bit of our mortality and our limits. There's a whole branch of psychology called terror management theory. I've talked about it in our podcast and here and there, but when we have reminders of our mortality, oftentimes we seek comfort in the community or we, we become entrenched more in our, ourselves into our, so we find, we try to find ways to express ourselves and our self-esteem in healthy ways. But we don't, when we don't have a community that we can fall back into, and when we don't have a coherent sense of self, then I think we're really at risk. And I, I think that's what you see here. You see with Paddock and, and Polito, you see a couple people here that their dreams are slipping away. They're kind of confronting the mortality. They're confronting these unknown futures, and they really don't have a community or a, a really coherent, strong sense of self to really fall back on to provide a sort of a support or a foundation that they can lean against. And, and I think that's when our, our communities are at the greatest risk. Or, or, and I think that's why perhaps we might see more of these types of, of mass shootings in the future. But hopefully we can try to come together, be aware and recognize red flags in, in others and ourselves. Yeah. And, and, and give, the Politos something to hang their hats on or something to believe in or give them some hope in some way. I mean, whatever, you know, I mean, part of that is up to them to find too, unfortunately, but maybe our communities can offer these people like him more options. Yes. Yes. There was a quote you would always say you said on that podcast when death, it was a Dr. John quote, when death looks you in the eye, sing to it. In other words, as you, as we get older and we, confront our pasts and we see less of a future and dreams not fulfilled, all those things that cause us stress as we age. I just, I remember actually your mother listening to that podcast. And I don't know if you remember this, but I remember your mother listening to that podcast and talking to you about it. And that quote meant a lot to her that when death, how, how I don't, I don't want to misquote you, but when death looks you in the eye, sing to it. Yeah. As death approaches. As death approaches. And, and, and to expand on that idea, not just death, I think everything, when threats approach, when, you know, it's, it's healthier to sing to it rather than to fight it. Right. Well said. Well said. We've, we've definitely, we actually have a saying in our house. It's not singing because none <laughs> of us can sing. Well, none of us can dance either, but we have a saying in our house when things get a little too stressful and we have this open floor living, you know, home floor plan. And so everybody hears everything. And when things get too stressful, we say, we just need to dance a little bit more. We just have to focus on dancing a little bit more, you know, not literally figuratively, just meaning we need to lighten the mood and, and, and it's similar. So, and, right. and we've been trying to do that this week a little bit more. And to dance with something is to accept it, to embrace it, right? And I think that's the, neither Paddock nor Polito embraced anything, really, right? Dancing is embracing. It's it's loving. It's joy. Yes. Yes. So with that, well, we will continue dancing throughout the rest of the holiday season or trying to do a little bit more of that. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Thank you, Dr. John. We'll see you guys 
soon again. Like I said, I'll, I'll be here next week with a lot. There's a lot happening with the stories we've been covering. So you'll be seeing me quite a bit next week. And John might jump on as well. We've been talking about it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Good night. Good night. Hello, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren with Hidden, a true crime podcast. As a TV reporter, I learned the art of visual storytelling. So if you're like me, you enjoy listening, but also viewing. You can actually head to our YouTube channel, Hidden True Crime, to watch these interviews. Hit the subscribe button for surprise lives and breaking news. And for exclusive content, things Dr. John and I only dare say behind a paywall, become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash hidden true crime. You'll find bonus episodes, early releases, and insider info. Thank you for your endless support. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.